Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. Welcome to Pod Save the World. I'm Max Fisher, sitting in for Tommy. I'm Ben Rhodes, sitting in my normal seat. (laughs) (laughs) So Ben, listeners might not know this, but you were a lifelong adherent of Burning Man, and it was a last ditch after (laughs) to helicopter you out in time for the recording. Can you talk about the rescue mission at all? I've actually never been to Burning Man, but I've heard so much and been lobbied so hard to attend (laughs) Burning Man, and it's never really jumped to the top of my list. It just... The allure of the desert uh, in heavy psychedelic drugs and the wilderness and elaborate camp setups, uh, you know, pulled a little bit. But Mm -hmm. uh, I'm now not regretting my choice (laughs) to uh, avoid Burning Man. This year is not selling you on on wanting to go try it out. It's also one of those funny things, Max, you'll get this as a, you know, a media elite, uh, former Vox, New York Times guy. Like, I feel like this is getting a lot of coverage because everybody in the circle of people that write for these publications Mm -hmm. has either been to Burning Man or knows people who have. And so it's what should be kind of a rather obscure niche story is now like now national news for multi-days as if it's like, you know, the Maui wildfires or something when in fact <laughs> right, it's just right, like uh, right. a bunch of people like uh, stuck in the desert. For yeah, I think people would be surprised how many famous media elite figures go to Burning Man yes, every they year. Do. I would well, never yes, one of do. them. But... Yes, yeah, they, they certainly do. Yeah. So this week, huge week, we're going to talk about um, why military coups are suddenly way more frequent in Africa and whether there's some French, Russian like geopolitical competition playing a role there. We're going to talk about Biden planning some big and maybe risky moves around the upcoming G20 summit in India. Uh, I'm really excited to get into China's spiraling economic crisis, whether, you know, this is the big one, maybe the most important story of like this year or decade. Uh, And we'll also hit the latest turns in Russia and Ukraine. But who'd you talk to this week? So uh, I talked to Yanti Saripto, uh, who's been on before. She's the head of Save the Children, uh, mm-hmm. a wonderful uh, international organization. Um, Yanti was in Ukraine when I spoke to her. Um, so she offers a kind of on-the-ground perspective of what it's like for the Ukrainian people, particularly Ukrainian children. Um, we talked a bit about what is the role of an NGO like Save the Children? How does it fit into the broader ecosystem of governments trying to provide support in Ukraine? What are the humanitarian needs? How do you prioritize 
uh, assistance when there's so many needs. But I think most powerfully, and the reason I hope people stick around and listen to the interview, like she gives some very you know potent vignettes of what it's like in Ukraine right now, what it's like for children going back to school. You know, as mm-hmm. a as a parent, you know, hearing the contrast to you know bombed out schools and and the the rush to create any sense of normalcy for Ukrainian children as against, you know, our experience here of Instagramming our children going with the, the grades sure. that they're going. Yeah. You know, it just, it put it, I think every now and then we talk, and we'll talk a lot about the war today, but we sometimes take the camera off the people that are in the middle of it. And so that's right. uh, that's what hopefully this interview provides. Yeah. And I know language education for Ukrainian kids in Russian-occupied areas has been a huge issue and just one of many ways that kids are being treated as a frontline in this conflict. They are. And even on the Ukrainian side, and you can see why, they're, they're, uh, one of the things I didn't realize is that a lot of the Ukrainian refugee children, they're trying to figure out ways to to allow them to zoom back into their Ukrainian school mm. so that they don't lose their Ukrainian identity, right. you know, integrating into European schools. Um, so there's a, you know, mm. the future of Ukrainian identity is very much right. uh, for for better and worse and often for horrific ends yeah. uh, playing out among Ukrainian children. Interesting. Um, okay, well, let's hit the headlines from Russia and Ukraine this week. Uh, a lot big, of headlines. Oh, yeah. <laughs> big week, oh, big yeah. week, yeah. Putin has spurned the big diplomatic push to revive what is known as the Black Sea Grain Deal. As a refresher, Russia and Ukraine, two of the world's top grain exporters, they reached a deal early in the war last year that allowed both of them to continue exporting. Putin backed out in July and has even been attacking Ukrainian grain and shipping facilities. Uh, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who helped broker the original deal, met with Putin to try to get him back on. But Putin said no, unless the West meets all sorts of new demands. Um, Ben, this sure looks to me like Putin taking the world's food supply hostage. But what do you make of it? No, I think that's right. And uh, a lot of people thought that he might, you know, in a desire to have uh, improved relations with Erdogan, try to come up with some even a half measure here. But the reality is uh, he clearly didn't feel that much pressure to do so. And mm-hmm. it didn't feel like Erdogan was pressing him that hard either. I mean, we don't know what happened behind closed doors. Putin is on this kind of diplomatic offensive to show, I think, that he's not totally isolated. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, zooming into the BRICS summit, having this meeting with Erdogan in Sochi, which is kind of one of Putin's you know, bases of operations. Um, recently hosted an African summit. Where talk about Kim Jong-un in a second. Oh um, so, uh, you know, I think Putin's purpose in that meeting was not to reach any resolution, but just to show, you know, I can meet with a NATO leader like Erdogan. And uh, Erdogan, by the way, is not going along with sanctions in the same way that uh, you, other European countries are. Um, and so f- for the foreseeable future, I think global food prices, global food supply continue to be at the mercy of Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine. Yeah, that's a great point. It resolves a mystery for me, which I was like, with the Russian economy doing as poorly as it is, I was really surprised that he would sacrifice any major export. But I think that you're right that he needs this sense of like being legitimate on the world stage. Yeah, that seems to be, as usual, much more important to him than than human conditions (laughs) in other places, unfortunately. And Erdogan, you know, I think Erdogan, after kind of a pivot to the West Mm -hmm. and allowing uh, Sweden to enter NATO and doing a number of things that the U.S. had asked, you know, he likes to tack back and forth. And that's what he just did. Right. So you mentioned this uh, as part of the big Putin global diplomatic push. Um, 
North Korean leader Kim Jong-un might be planning to visit, according to American officials, the nearby Russian city of Vladivostok to meet with Putin and discuss selling him North Korean artillery shells and ammunition in exchange for Russian help with advanced systems like satellites and submarines. Meanwhile, in the uh, sector of uh, the Russian government making friends, Cuba's foreign ministry put out a statement saying some of its citizens living in Russia and even some of them living in Cuba are being coerced into joining the Russian military to fight on Ukraine. So really looks like another big success for Putin that he's now leaning on two of the world's smallest, poorest countries for help in his war. Well, I think the the North Korean one to me uh, is is a fairly big event, assuming this hmm. happens, um, for a couple reasons uh, in both directions. The first is that the Russians could get something quite tangible out of this. Like North yeah. Korea, because the war that has been envisioned uh, for the last several decades on the Korean Peninsula would involve a lot of artillery, uh, a lot of small arms, you know, a lot of munitions. North Korea really could be a consequential supplier to Russia. That's they true. have yeah. huge stocks. So there's something pretty tangible that he could get out of this. But I think even more, Kim Jong-un can get something out mm-hmm. of this significantly. Um, you know, Russia's always been kind of North Korea curious or North Korea adjacent. Sure. They obviously have a legacy of relationships dating back to the Soviet days. But the big but you know, Russia, even under Putin, has always kind of managed to walk this line where on some things they kind of played ball as a stakeholder in the international system. And sure. so they actually kind of did half go along with some of the sanctions on North Korea. They went through sure. the UN Security Council. There Was where, it four-party talks where there's the big North Yeah, Korea they talks? went through the, the well, there's six-party talks. Um, so uh, many they, parties. Yeah, so many <laughs> parties. They were part of diplomatic efforts. They kind of they they didn't take the U.S. position exactly, but they they did try to I think be somewhat of a restraining force on mm-hmm. the kind of weirder aspects of Kim Jong Un. Sure. And if he's now saying, you know what, like we're going to start giving them advanced technology for their submarine and missile programs, um, that is potentially like a we don't know exactly what they'd share. It's potentially mm-hmm. like a pretty substantial escalation um, in terms of Russian support for North Korea. North Korea's already consolidated their nuclear missile programs, mm-hmm. already you know approaching what people once had thought would be you know an unacceptable outcome of being able to hit the United States with a, a nuclear-tipped ICBM. Sure. And obviously, you know, there's a tinderbox there in in Northeast Asia. Um, with Taiwan and North Korea, uh, with U.S. allies, Japan, South Korea. Um, and Max, we're going to do World War Watch, which we haven't done on this uh, podcast in, in, in a little bit. Um, but this is yet another one yeah. of those places where the, when there's one big war, as there's in Ukraine, like stuff starts to happen on other fault lines. And Insecurity is, kind of, is contagious. Yeah, he's consolidated this access of like you know, Russians... I'm not going to call it an axis of, of anything. <laughs> I'm just saying that there's that. pretty intense coordination between China, Russia, right. North Korea, Iran. Um, you know, uh, the whether that leads to escalating tensions mm-hmm. in the Korean Peninsula and Northeast Asia, uh, I think it very well might. So th- this is not just kind of a weird, mm-hmm. uh, you know, pageantry of, you know, Kim Jong-un taking the 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 railroad cars <laughs> to, to Vladivostok for sure. a photo op. I right. think there's real substance here that could, could be quite alarming. That's a good point. And I, in favor of taking this very seriously in years of writing about North Korea's 
missile and nuclear developments. Something that I was always really struggling to get people to accept is that we think of this as a like joke, weird, yeah. backwards country, but they're a really formidable military power. Yeah. And it, you know, has come at the expense of their people and it's still an enormously impoverished country, but their systems are pretty sophisticated yeah. for even a much larger and wealthier country. So I think you're right that their military participation is is significant. And you've covered this too, like, you know, a lot of their technology they've stolen or mm-hmm. they've kind of got on some illicit market sure. or they, you know, via Pakistan or, you know, they, they, a lot of it's indigenous. Right. N- significant high quality technology transfer from China and Russia. You mm-hmm. know, I, I think those countries have been pretty restrained. Right. And if Russia opens up that aperture, they obviously have a lot uh, of know-how that could help elevate the North Korea program. So it bears watching. Yeah. And the potential for a North Korean nuclear submarine or missile arm submarine is it's serious. Yeah. It's like uh, we have AUKUS, uh, the nuclear sub program with the United States, UK and Australia. Now that we may be dealing with, I don't know what the acronym will be. RUNK. Yeah. RUNK. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Uh, Okay, so there's been a a new wave of Ukrainian drone strikes within Russia, including in Moscow. Uh, The attacks tend to be pretty small. Some analysts think that a lot or maybe even most of them get shot down, but they're getting noticed. Um, Over the weekend, Russian state TV aired, I was surprised by this, a guest expert decrying that Russia had moved so many of its air defense systems to the front line of Ukraine that it was struggling to defend its cities. Ben, what do you make as the kind of goal of these drone attacks that Ukraine is launching? And do you think they are working? I think the goal is to make Russians feel like the war is coming home to them, um, that mm-hmm. that to try to elevate the political cost on Putin by creating insecurity in places like Moscow. I think the goal, frankly, is also in talking to Ukrainians myself, like it's a morale boost, um, yeah. you know, as yeah, it's a little uncomfortable that the center is civilian targeting, although they've been generally focused on military targets. But I think, you know, the, there's a desire to hit the Russians mm-hmm. in the same way that we've been hit. And it, it's a way to kind of boost morale. I also just think that as the war grinds on and there's a, a slow moving front line and there's right. huge casualties, that there's going to be more efforts to have kind of asymmetrical attacks, probably in both directions. And we've mm-hmm. seen the Russians do this on all manner of Ukrainian targets, but the Ukrainians clearly want to blow up the bridge that connects Crimea to Russia. Mm-hmm. They clearly want to strike uh, Russian military targets deeper into Russia. They may undertake other a- a- efforts at sabotage. We've seen plenty of reports about the Ukrainians being responsible for potentially the mm-hmm. an assassination of a Russian ideologue or a blowing up of Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Right. Um, so I think this is, you know, this is going to be probably uh, an increasing fa- uh, factor in the war. I'm really glad that you raised the psychological boost for Ukrainians, which I think people are hesitant to mention. Yes. And we kind of take for granted that, like, of course, the Ukrainians will want to fight under Zelensky forever. But, you know, this war is getting really costly and he needs to do things to keep people yes. enthusiastic and on the front lines. Um, I will say that I I agree that I think an intended goal is to undermine support for Putin, or at least to make him fear that he could potentially lose support. But I don't think it's going to be effective at that. I just think that Russian citizens have been through a lot worse in the last 20 years. And when we've seen, you know, terrorist attacks within Russia, it tends to lead to a big rallying of support for Putin and for, you know, Putin's particular methods. And a lot of Russians still think this war is defensive. That I think you're right. I mean, that's the risk for the Ukrainians is that it fosters that. The only other thing I'd say about this, Max, that's interesting is that hmm. this war on the, has been both a throwback and a 
mm. you know, war of the future. The throwback right. is right. this front line with all this artillery and trenches. And yet this is the first kind of major, you know, certainly in Europe, uh, conventional war that has this drone element that yeah. is, you know, hugely impactful. It's both a tool that's being used to cross the front line. Mm-hmm. There are these kamikaze drones that the Russians have used against Ukrainian targets. And now you see this. So w- the war is weirdly you know, bridging the past and the future of warfare. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, speaking of the future of warfare in Ukraine and Russia, the European Union issued a big report on Russian online disinformation, which it says is growing in reach and scope in Europe. Um, And it lays a lot of the blame on American social media companies, which the report says have failed to police what the industry calls coordinated and authentic behavior. Um, It says Kremlin-backed campaigns still have the biggest reach on Facebook-owned platforms, which has been true for years, but that Moscow's activity is growing on Telegram, TikTok, YouTube, and especially on Twitter, which the report spends a lot of time hitting because Elon Musk has fired or dismantled most of the teams responsible for squashing government influence campaigns. There have been a lot of suspicions for a while about Elon Musk and Russia. Do you yeah. see this as playing into that in any way? I do. I, I And I look, I don't know what Elon Musk's motivation is. It's hard to Sure. Know, when someone's a megalomaniac, it's hard to kind of... And on that much ketamine. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's hard to kind of get inside that brain. What is clear, though, is that there has... Look, I, as a Twitter user, uh, an ex-user, whatever it's called, uh, much less of a user than I used to be. Yeah, um, and I love the word user because it, it does uh, <laughs> attribute it as a drug. But... Um, I've noticed a lot more, you know, Russian adjacent narratives in my feed. Uh, Hmm. I imagine what it's like if you're, you know, sitting in Germany and you, you know, you're kind of curious about that. And and so I I do think that there has clearly been, as Twitter has kind of opened up the aperture under Elon, Mm -hmm. um, this stuff is traveling farther and wider and it's having an impact. We've been talking a lot recently about public opinion eroding and kind of Russian narratives taking hold. And right. this stuff really matters. And this is a, a platform that is, even in its degraded state, a kind of first portal for news for a lot mm-hmm. of people, including a lot of elites. Um, right. Right. So I think this matters. Yeah, I agree. And I think that we have seen pretty much across the board on social platforms, not just Twitter, a big rise in misinformation, disinformation, extremist campaigns. And this is like, it's a pattern that we've seen over and over where the further we are from an American election, the less stringent the rules are on the platforms where they just, they tighten it up before an election so that they don't get too much heat and they loosen them as soon as the election is off. And I have to suspect that this report and looking especially the way it's written is written really with a mind towards bolstering EU regulations against the social media companies, which they've been on the warpath for for years and yeah. have been tightening a lot of them. So to me, I think this is laying the groundwork for getting even stricter on the companies. Well, that yeah, that would be the big you know play to make from a policy perspective to deal with this. Yeah. I, I will say from a societal and political perspective, what's interesting to me is how much this kind of Russian mm-hmm. uh, narratives um, and misinformation has kind of completely merged, <laughs> like yeah. as if it's two entities with the kind of American right-wing free speech right. conspiracy theory world. It's That's kind of become one ecosystem, you mm-hmm. know, um, from like Elon and the Joe Rogans of the world mm-hmm. to Putin. And that that's interesting. Right. <laughs> I just, you know, like I'll just that's leave it at that. Point. I, mean, I don't think it's because those guys are or signing up to Russian agents, sure. maybe Tucker Carlson to right. some extent, but like they they, they are 
um, they're swimming in the exact same stew. You know. Well, this is something that social media does. I mean, the yeah. way that it's it all drives flat, people together, together, right? Yeah. And it uses its algorithms to like blur these communities. Together. I mean, that was how we got QAnon. Yeah. Was there all of these weird niche extremist communities yeah. that the like Facebook algorithm figured out that it could route people through? But that's a good point that the kind of pro-Russian, like anti-liberal establishment thing is really getting wrapped into a lot of this. Yeah, which again is uh, globalizing the war in Ukraine in a strange way. Right. Yeah. Um, okay, let's talk about the big rising trend of military coups in Africa. Coups are actually pretty rare in Africa from 2000 to 2020, and they had been declining for quite a while before that. But then suddenly in 2021, there were four just in one year, which is a lot. Then two more in 2022, both in Burkina Faso, plus three failed attempted coups. Uh, and this year so far, there have been two, the first in Niger, which you and Tommy, of course, have talked a lot about, and now last week in Gabon. Um, and a lot of these places are in the same geographic neighborhood in parts of West Africa in a region called the Sahel. So it's not an Africa-wide problem. Um, some people have emphasized that a lot of these are former French colonies and also that Russian influence operations conducted by the Wagner Group are present in a bunch of them. Um, ben, what do you make of this trend? Do you have a kind of theory for why now, what might be driving this? I mean, the the an important thing I, I would note is like, I, you know, I remember, um, you know, being in government, um, even at during a you know the Obama years coincided with like uh, like the, the 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 period of democratic backsliding, um, which is obviously accelerated dramatically. And, and but even you know the democratic backsliding we confronted in in a, in a continent like Africa was usually of the variety of like a a leader amending the constitution try to stick around like electoral a, populism, like, yeah, Paul yeah. Kagame. So not right. like a military coup, right? And it was still, I, you know, it, it's still, there were these kind of antibodies against things like coups or just kind of outright, you know, right. stealing of elections where, you know, if you did, there were cases where we did the play that they tried in Niger, for instance, where like the mm -hmm. regional organization ECOWAS condemns it, the U.S. sanctions some people, everybody puts out statements and then somebody backs down. And that right. actually happened in places right. like Cote d'Ivoire and um, to some extent uh, Senegal and uh it, and part of what I think has just been the the, the speed. Once you break the taboo, you yeah. know, once mm -hmm. a, a one or two, once this happened in Mali and Burkina Faso, and it's like the playbook book was ran, right? Like they did the coups, they were condemned, you know, ECOWAS put out statements and, and nothing happened. Right. I think that then everybody who's thinking about doing this is like, well, wait a second, like mm -hmm. uh, I can go for it. So I do think that part of what accounts for the rapid nature in succession is that the guardrails have just broken. The dam is broken. The water is flowing everywhere. The, the coup waters are rising. Mm -hmm. I think underneath that, why this region now? I mean, I just think that the, the you know, longstanding poor governance, longstanding frustrations at these relationships with the French, but also the United States are overly securitized, longstanding presence of... Mm -hmm you know, uh, extremist jihadist groups that have kind of worn down security forces. And yes, like the Wagner influence operations and the Russian influence, it's not like enormous, mm. but in these countries where the, the governance is so brittle, like yeah. in a, in a you know, in a Niger or mm -hmm. Burkina Faso, it doesn't take a lot, like, yeah. like, like a really effective influence operation targeted around elites, um, coupled and, with like a little bit of, you know, mm -hmm. people whispering in your ear, that can make a difference. It's, you're talking about a few hundred people determining right. whether a coup works or not. So right. you don't need to kind of mobilize the whole country. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that the to the extent the Russian influence operations are playing a role, I think it tends to be pushing on an open door. Yeah. I'm a little skeptical of the arguments that this is a backlash to, you know, Macron's kind of growing no. effort to yeah. build influence there. And I think you're absolutely right that, I mean, coups are normative. Everybody who I've ever talked to who studies coups says that it's all about norms, not just because it's like, do people in their heart respect the ideas of democracy, but because coups are a coordination problem. Any country with a military can theoretically pull off a coup, and whether or not it happens turns on whether the people who would theoretically leave a coup believe they can get the other people in the military to organize, believe they can get the rest of the government and you know key allies to go along, and then believe they will be accepted once they're in power. And that is why the people who studies always say is that there is a real contagion effect in coup. Yeah. And we saw two right before this trend, one in um, Sudan in 2019 and one in Mali in 2020, both for kind of reasons very particular to those two countries, but they were both successful. And I really think that that more than anything else, yeah. more than any actual factor is what set this like, you know, whatever random jackass colonel in whatever country thinking like, I can do this, I can pull this off and I'll be accepted if I do it, which also makes it hard to unwind because when you've got so many like this going, it makes it so much more tempting for other coup leaders, especially in the, the targeted countries is why you so often see these cycles of coups and counter coups. Yeah, I think that's right. And on the French thing, I think you're right too, that they don't, you know, people are not sitting in all these countries thinking like, you know, I I reject Emmanuel Macron's speech right. that he gave about this. <laughs> right. I think where the right. resentment builds is like the longstanding resentment of colonialism, but also like there've been these pretty high profile French interventions in places like Mali yeah. that, you know, the classic Western mistake and the U.S. makes the same mistake in these same countries. You know, we see a threat of, mm -hmm. uh, of, of you know, Al-Qaeda in the Sahel or ISIS in the Sahel. And so we surge a bunch of resources down there. Mm -hmm. And sure, do the populations in those countries not like violent extremism? Sure, they don't. But that's actually not the kind of core problem uh, right, of right. the com complete breakdown of governance. And so I think the frustration mm -hmm. is more even even among the militaries, right? Because it's yeah. the militaries doing the coups. Like the, we keep being dragged out to fight these uh, jihadists in the desert mm -hmm. um, when you know, uh, like our people are getting more and more pissed about other stuff. Sure. And it's pretty easy for a coup leader to demagogue that. Right. You know? um, so here we are. Well, and this question of French involvement is a, is a live one right now because Gabon, which just had the coup, France has 1,500 troops there, which is not, you know, a full invasion course. But yeah. in a country that small, it's enough to like bring back a democratic leader or not, or if, you know, if someone is trying to come back to help nudge them. And they're facing this question of, do they withdraw as the new coup leader has demanded they do, or do they stay, which, you know, looks kind of neo-imperial and neo-colonial. Yeah. And I know that Mali is really hanging over this because on the one hand, they had a number of interventions in Mali and like, look at how it's doing now, not so good. But on the other hand, I know there are people who take the position that, well, the French left at some point, and once you lost that kind of stabilizing outside force, it was much easier for the Malian military to stage a coup. So, yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't envy the the dilemma they're facing, which seems like a real lose lose. Yeah, I mean, I, I think they're just going to have to kind of reboot their entire Africa policy because this, yeah. is, you know, it's broken completely. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, speaking of military coups. The military junta that had ruled Thailand yes. directly or indirectly since 2014 finally handed over power to an elected civilian government a couple of weeks ago. Um, democracy is back in Thailand, but with a big asterisk. 
Um, as you and I have talked about in the elections back in May, the first place winner was this new progressive party called Move Forward, led by a young, energetic guy named Pita Limjaronrat. This is a really big deal because usually Thai voters polarize between these two traditionally dominant parties, and instead they'd gone for this progressive outsider who ran on restoring liberal democracy yeah. to you know what has traditionally been a very democratic country. Um, but I guess he was seen as too big of a threat to the Thai political establishment, which is dominated by the military and especially by the monarchy, and which barred him from taking power. Um, and instead, after months of negotiations a couple of weeks ago, Thailand swore in a prime minister from the party that came in second in elections. Um, and it's ironic because that party that is now in power called Futai has also traditionally challenged the country's pro-military, pro-monarchy establishment. And that has led to like crisis after crisis. But I guess they were seen as less of a threat than our guy PETA. So Ben, is this is this like two steps forward, one step backward for Thai democracy, or the other way around? Do you I think, think? It's, yeah, I think it's two steps back. I mean, yeah. um, there's a lot going on here. I mean, first of all, just to pick up on the coup contagion, I've always thought you know mm. uh, that an underappreciated aspect of the brutal coup in Myanmar that took place yeah. in 2021 mm -hmm. is that essentially. You know the, the the you know Thailand is a U.S. treaty ally. <laughs> like yeah, people always right. forget that this yeah. is like an, a U.S. ally, yeah. and they have a massive border with uh, Myanmar. And frankly, mm -hmm. they've traditionally kind of been, you know, supportive in some ways of our uh, Myanmar policy, and right. they've hosted a lot of refugees, including you know political exiles uh, from Myanmar, Burma. Um, and I think once the military you know regime kind of consolidated in Thailand and you know, in the past they'd done coups and then had elections and handed it back. Right. This time they didn't really do that. Um, I do think that that informed the decision-making of the, the Myanmar junta. Yeah. And actually you mm -hmm. even see today that uh, efforts to kind of isolate the military regime in Myanmar through the Southeast Asian organization, ASEAN, right. the ties are actually on the wrong side of that, you know, which is mm. the opposite side of where they would have been right. you know, a decade ago. Right. Um, so th this matters and it matters across Southeast Asia. Thaksin, who's kind of the leader, the kind of, yeah, I think billionaire leader right. of this populist party. The one that just take power in Yeah. 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 He had been prime minister, he'd been ousted, then his sister was prime minister in right. the Obama years, then she was ousted. And so he'd been seen as kind of the populist challenger mm. to the military. And when he goes back and you know, after a long period of exile goes back, he cut this deal right. where essentially the, the royalist military establishment allowed him to not be imprisoned and come back and allowed his party right. uh, to come in in exchange for him essentially, you know, selling his soul, you know, and, yeah. and, and, and throwing this uh, move forward party into the bus. I think that's a big step back because it kind of grinds people down that like, oh, th th there's something kind of immovable about the entrenched elites. If even a guy right. like Thaksin, who's been right. an, an opponent of this establishment is now in cahoots with it, it kind of has a demoralizing impact. Mm -hmm. hope, my hope is though that it, you know, over time, more and more people will just rally to move forward and the, right. the pressure builds once again. Right. And I think that's probably what will happen. It just, right. it's gonna be a long road. I mean, there's this kind of core tension in not just Thai democracy, but like arguably all democracies where they exist as this kind of unspoken pact among the ruling elites and institutions to set the balance of who can participate and who can't participate, yeah. right? Like in the US, traditionally, this was the party system and the party nominating system. In Europe, they call it the cordon sanitaire. And it like people hate it 
when they see that and they hate it when they see someone who is genuinely popular, whether they're like Argai Pita, who is a real progressive champion for democracy, or in Europe, if it's extremists, yeah. getting left out of the system. And I think that the I think that there was a way for the Thai pro-monarchy military establishment to navigate this crisis in a way that would have, you know, eased their concerns about PETA's opposition to the monarchy, but preserve some of the legitimacy of the democratic order. And I think I think they just screwed it up because yeah, I think yeah. they're just like, you know, they were it was under quasi-military rule for nine years. So they kind of forgot how to do it. They were a lot savvier in the past. There's a new king who I can say this because we yeah. don't have an office in Thailand yeah. is not very good. He's not doing a good job. And yeah. the old king was like, I don't like that it was this like weird quasi-monarchy, quasi-democracy, but he was a lot savvier about navigating this in a way that kept the system stable. And I think that as long as this new guy is in power as the king, who is like, doesn't seem that interested, seems really disengaged, is maybe being used a little bit as a puppet by kind of pro-monarchy elites. Uh, I think we're going to see recurring cycles of instability in this really important country that has been this kind of beacon of democracy in the region for a long time. I I couldn't agree more. Like in this, the, the old king was... Um... Uh, you know, there's some eccentricity around the Thai monarchy, but he was really a revered figure of national unity. Sure. Yeah. Um, and so the the deal that there's this kind of, you know, Wizard of Oz behind the curtain right, and, right, right, and right. the military accepts in every now and then, not, not exactly the deal I'd construct, but there was something, <laughs> you know, there's something that people had kind of bought into there. Right. Now, a couple things have happened. One, this military government that's been around for almost a decade mm-hmm. has been terrible at governing. They're clearly right. like hugely corrupt. Right. They're not very efficient. They're not very technocratic. Right. They're not really responsive to public opinion. The new king is this crazy, you know, playboy mm-hmm. who spent most of his life in Europe, who once uh, appointed his dog to be a, <laughs> like a general in the air force. I think uh, of Thailand. Like it sounds he, like a it sounds like a crooked media guy. Yeah, honestly. <laughs> yeah. And these like bi- multi billionaires and money all over the place, you know. And so I I think that, that where does that lead? It leads to the yeah. fact that like Thailand is like a pretty open society, pretty right. well connected to the world, very right. young, like. This place could blow at some point. I mean, I, like, I mean, I've heard this for years, and I don't sure. know what exactly that looks like. But we've seen kind of occupy movements there. We've seen uh, occasional street violence. Like, this is not this idea of just like you know keeping this sclerotic, corrupt, monarchical establishment mm-hmm. stealing from the people. I think at some point it's just not going to be sustainable. Yeah, I'm not quite there. I think yet just yeah, because long the, term, yeah. I'm taking long term oh, okay yeah. Yeah. yeah well I mean we and we also like saw the Thai voters really come out for democracy and really push for it and we've seen them protest over and over again there's a really strong middle class with strong democratic values so yeah I'm, I'm rooting for Thailand I'm rooting for Thailand As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. Guys, it's been a rough year going to get rougher and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet you could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender do your worst 
But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. Let's talk uh, G20. Um, so the summit comprising the world's 20 biggest economies is meeting in India this coming weekend. Already just a drama fest. Um, Xi Jinping is not going. This is the only time he has missed the G20 in 10 years. And he's sending his deputy Li Chang instead. Um, ben, is this about snubbing Modi, do you think? I, 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 I think... Yes. Uh, I don't know that that's like, you know, Xi Jinping just went to South Africa for this BRICS summit, right? Right. So, you know, that sends a message. I'll I'll show up at the BRICS summit um, in South Africa, but I'm not going to go on a much shorter trip to to what is a very big deal for the Indians. They see this as, you know, them taking a role on the world stage and and one of, if not the most... um, high-profile organization in the world these days, the G20. Mm-hmm. Um, they just had this uh, meeting where we talked about last week, they tried to signal some progress in resolving their territorial disputes in the North. Right. And then right after that meeting, the Chinese decided to release their annual map of China that includes literally a chunk of India. <laughs> you know. And look, they do that all the time and people sure. get pissed, but yeah, the timing okay. was yeah. pretty conspicuous. It's like, we just met right. and you're just about to host this G20 and we're going to release this map. Now, mm-hmm. I think that Xi Jinping seems to not like to travel that much anymore. Mm. There's kind of an empire, emperor quality. Right. People come Beijing, to Beijing, you come to him. Right. But he's slotting Modi in the people that he won't go see and that have to come see him, you right. know, or have yeah. to see him in third countries. And that he knows, you know, even if it's that he's kind of tired and jet lagged, well, he, he knows that it's going to be received as a snub by Modi. So right. I think it is a signal that she is not all in on any kind of rapprochement between him and Modi. Yeah, I agree. The only thing that is like tickling my radar in this a little bit is the fact that they haven't leaned too much. The Chinese have not leaned too much into messaging on it. So if they're yeah. going to like make a point, like they're not making the point that much. And, the, you know, as we're going to talk about, like huge economic problems yeah. in China, they're just these reports that are coming out that, you know, take it with a grain of salt, but that at the annual meeting a couple of months ago, of former senior Chinese leaders. They have this annual retreat they go to. There are rumors coming out that she got really chastised by the other former leaders because they don't like what he's, the direction that he's taking the country. There's been kind of turmoil in the top ranks of the military. And I think China's like about to collapse or in crisis, but it's possible that part of the calculation was just, 
he's, he's got some problems at home. What's really interesting to me about that, though, is I think the high watermark of the G20, um, and I'm not just saying this because it was in the Obama years, but I think yeah. it's it's because of the nature of the times, was in the aftermath of the financial crisis. And, right. and in 2009, 2010, 2011, the G20 was the venue where people basically tried to kind of breathe life in did breathe life back into the global economy. And what did that mm-hmm. mean? It meant like the Chinese coordinating with us, the steps that they were taking to stimulate demand in their economy. Right. You know, how are we going to kind of cobble together the resources to keep the Eurozone afloat? And, and so Chinese and American and other economic problems were dealt with jointly. And yeah, it's kind of interesting right. to me that at a time of Chinese economic crisis, mm-hmm. rather than trying to figure out some, you know, sit around the table where you're supposed to work with other countries to prevent contagion and mm-hmm. things like that, he's doing the opposite. It, it's a sign of the times uh, that the international cooperation is not in vogue in the same way that it once was. It's a great point, and it's not something that I had ever thought of as a one of the many risks that's come with this era of great yeah. power competition that on economic matters, you really need heavy international cooperation and not clear we're going to be able to... And that used to be set apart from other geopolitical tensions. Right. You could be right. fighting about one thing, but you all had an interest in not seeing the global economy tank. But it feels like now the nationalism is such a fever pitch and the rivalry, great power rivalry is such a fever pitch that they're not likely to use the G20 in that way. And so much conflict is economic now, yeah. especially among US, Russia, and China. Yes. So Modi has his own little power play going on at G20. Some official or semi-official G20 invitations refer to him as the prime minister of Bharat rather than the prime minister of India. This is seen as a nod to hardline Hindu nationalists within Modi's party, the BJP, who have been agitating to officially change the country's name from India to Bharat, which is a Sanskrit word, comes from ancient mythology. Uh, This fight actually dates back to independence in 1947 when there was a big debate over whether to call it India or Bharat. Um, India was the colonial name and most former British colonies got rid of their colonial name. Um, Nationalists wanted to switch to Bharat as a way to break from that and also as a way to enshrine a name associated with the Hindu religion and also with the Hindi language, which is spoken by just under half of India's population or natively spoken. But the independence leaders chose to keep India in part because it was religiously and ethnically neutral. So Ben, are we going to start relabeling our globes with Bharat one day? Or do you think we can ignore this as a little stunt? No, I think this is something to watch. I mean, you know, ironically, we just talked about Myanmar, which was Burma. um, And obviously, you know, Calcutta and Bombay have gone by the wayside. Uh, You know, it's at core, Modi is a Hindu nationalist who prizes symbol and, you know, going to Bharat would be, you know, kind of treating the Muslim dynasties in India as kind of a right. similar to British colonialism. <laughs> right. You know, it's like right. it's winding back the clock all the way, you know, uh, to uh, like a time in which, you know, it was, you know, basically just a Hindu nation. And that's a huge, huge piece of business. I mean, hmm. Nehru and Gandhi and the founders of, of, of modern India like avowedly wanted it to be a secular democracy, you know, and and the BJP never truly accepted that. Now, it's kind of like Xi Jinping. It's not quite as dramatic, but like when we think like, will Xi Jinping want to leave power without taking Taiwan back? Uh, you wonder how far Modi wants to go in kind of turning India into a Hindu national state. And this is a good barometer of that. You know? Right, right. Yeah, I know. I think all the time about this kind of wave of revisionist movement back to like old style hardline ethnic nationalism that kind of 
started with Israel like 20 years ago yeah. and has been moving in this kind of these shockwaves around the world. And like, you know, five, six, seven years ago, I thought that the ultimate test of that was going to be what happened in the United States. But more and more, I actually think it's more important what happens in India and whether India like fully goes down that path. The biggest country in the world, you know. Yeah, right. So Biden's little ploys for G20, the reports that he might meet with uh, Saudi leader Mohammed bin Salman, according to Axios, to discuss the deal to normalize Saudi-Israeli relations. It's been in the works for a while. Sorry. I, I know that side. Yeah, well, I'm right there with you. Yeah. Uh, State Department Special Envoy Brett McGurk is in Saudi Arabia this week. Uh, ben, you and Tommy have talked a lot about this deal, whether it's a good idea or not. Uh, I'm curious what you think about the wisdom of Biden of elevating it to the kind of presidential head of state level and Biden potentially meeting for a second time. I think it would be a second meeting with MBS in person. I, yeah. I mean, look, I obviously I don't like <laughs> meeting with MBS uh, as a general matter. Um, Are we not having him on the show? I, I, yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah. Like we probably never walk out of the room. Um, <laughs> I, I think that the, you know, the thing about the Saudis is when, when Biden had the trip there, you know, the Saudis did a bunch of stuff in the run up to that, including, you know, telling us to take a hike on um, helping out with energy supplies. And they seem to, you know, when you're courting them, it, bad things happen. You know, the point is that the the atmosphere around this meeting would be we've just seen and we've talked the last couple of weeks, all these reports of Saudi units like just opening fire on migrants, potentially yeah. with U.S. supplied equipment. They just went to the BRICS summit in South Africa and like were welcomed as future members of BRICS. Um, uh, so they're, they're they're not like they're not trying to create a positive. Mo you know, right. all the onus seems to be on the U.S. to create some positive environment around a deal that is basically a huge giveaway to the Saudis. Right. Um, and so I'm never again like I, at the end of the day, I understand you have to meet with leaders and deal with leaders. Sure. Um, sure. And so while I don't like this, the optics of it, and I certainly didn't like going to Saudi Arabia. I think meeting a G20 is you know far less kind of inflammatory than That's kind true. of going there. And yeah. you know it's like a paying respect. Um, I, I do just think that there's not a ton of indication that the Saudis are going to make this you know normalization deal seem like it's a ripe opportunity <laughs> like it just it's gonna have to be on their terms and i you know i'm yet to see um you know that those terms tilt in in that direction you know yeah the only case that i have heard and i'm not sure i buy this the case that i've heard for keeping it american driven is that that is a way to push things onto the agenda on both sides that we would like to see there for the good of humanity in yeah. general and palestinians specifically i'm not sure i believe that this Israeli government would honor anything that it didn't want to honor anyway in the first place, though. Yeah, I think the two things that, that the U.S. could, quote unquote, get um, remain significant concessions on the Palestinian issue, mainly right. from Israel or, right. uh, and supported by Saudi. And I, right. I don't, for the same reasons, I'm skeptical there. And then some significant and, and truly kind of almost permanent Saudi commitment around China and mm -hmm. the dollars reserve currency and mm -hmm. technology controls and investment and um, and and that you know that's a murky space, um, but that's I think where you know where there could be at least something that is more U.S. centric uh, in the deal. Right. Let's talk Vietnam, which I I think is a pretty cool. One. Um, yeah. Biden will separately visit Vietnam as part of the trip. Um, the plan is to boost trade, American arms exports, and semiconductor supply and chain development that runs primarily through Vietnam rather than through China. 
uh, Vietnam is elevating ties with Washington to a special highest level tier it calls comprehensive strategic partnership. And I like to think we have a comprehensive strategic partnership. Uh, the only other countries in that category are China, Russia, India, and South Korea. Um, Such a communist. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I know. I know we're not even yeah. pretending anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you were obviously in the White House when Obama set out to build this kind of historic new relationship with Vietnam. How important did you consider these kind of official diplomatic tiers? And did you think it was just a matter of time until the U.S. got to this highest tier? Or do you think that was considered a long shot at the time? Uh, no, I think I think it's I think it, look, it, ma- it does matter. Um, I think it was inevitable because the Vietnamese have an interest in it. You know, yeah. the, the Vietnamese yeah. uh, talk about pushing on an open door like they. They right. have like a you know, recent bad history with us. They have a thousand years of rivalry with the Chinese who claim the entire body of water bordering their country, the South China Sea. And so they want a closer relationship with the United States. Um, and, and there, you know, I, I remember the Obama visit to Vietnam in 2016 as being one of the most emotional, impactful things. I mean, there were, that I was a part of, there were two million people lying in the streets of, of Ho Chi Minh City, Saigon, uh, as Obama drove in. Um, and so the, the visits matter. Um, the symbolism matters, uh, even the kind of jargon of the partnership matters, because underneath that, that, you know, means in their system, you know, there's certain categories of, you know, military uh, contacts and, you know, potential port visits by the U.S. Navy and, you know, things that, that could follow on from that kind of thing. I think the step back that happened was, you know, they were part of this trade agreement, the Trans-Pacific Partnership between the US and uh, 12 economies in the Asia Pacific. Whoops. And, and <laughs> the Trump pulled out of that and yeah. that, you know, the rest of the countries moved on. I think this is a sign that, you know, you could still have this comprehensive strategic partnership without that uh, as a part of it. Um, but I think figuring out a way to deepen economic ties is, is critical because what you've heard a lot, and we'll get into the Chinese economy, is that as there's been more risk in the Chinese economy, both because mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. in it's in bad shape, but also because of national security concerns, export controls, restrictions on investments into China, uh, I think the U.S. is kind of winking at a lot of mm-hmm. money uh, and business, uh, who's saying, "Hey, for our supply chains, we'd rather you build stuff in Vietnam, India, Mexico. Those are the three countries you hear the most." Um, the kind of manufacturing that used to be done in China, like let's move it here, you know, and that could be a huge deal. I mean, it could trans, you know, Vietnam already has a rapidly growing economy, but you know, Vietnam could really become a pretty central node in global supply chains and technology supply chains as an alternative, you know, low cost alternative to China, um, and and that to me, um, that's a real trend uh, to watch because I think it's going to happen. Yeah. And it's also, I mean, Vietnam, hugely important for Southeast Asia generally, yeah. because it's a big country that's getting bigger, a big economy that's getting bigger. It's yeah. a big military power in the region. So the idea that they would be a more of an independent player, especially at a time when like, I think generally the Southeast Asian countries seem like they all want to move away from China, but there's always some wavering and there's always some like, you know, China wants to pull them back in with some yeah. deal. They're not sure how trustworthy the U.S. is, there's which I get. There's the Chinese corruption in some of their officials. Right, you know? uh, right. Yeah. And real, right. China's really yeah. good at playing in corruption. Yeah. So yeah. China, uh, Vietnam is this kind of like decisive, big, um, yes. boy, I really hesitate to refer to it as a domino. <laughs> I No, I think it's like, a, I, I use, in government, I used to think of it as like a swing state, you know, okay. like, yeah. uh, <laughs> which it's is an a, American a, political reference. Right. But like, you know, which way they might break on right. any given issue right. is a huge deal. Okay. So let's talk the big economic slowdown in China. This is to me probably quietly like the most important story in the world right yeah. now. I'm going to try to do a quick 
primer on it because I think it's like it feels complicated. I don't get it. But if you see it, then it starts to like, I think, really click why it's so scary. Okay, so it's this kind of omni-crisis where you have four or five problems that are all coming to a head at once. Um, None of them is really disastrous on its own, but kind of like with the 2008 financial crisis in the US, they all touch on these load-bearing pillars of the wider economy in China. So if they all fall, it could get really, really bad, and they're all intertwined with each other. Um, Problem number one, you have a major slowdown in housing. Maybe this will sound familiar. Yes. Uh, China has a really tight set of banking restrictions that bar citizens from a lot of financial services like loans or investments. So as their economy grew and this huge new Chinese middle class was rising, had all this wealth, they had very few places to put it. So a lot of households put their money in housing. And at the same time, the Chinese government also poured a ton of its cash that it was getting from this big export-driven economic boom into infrastructure and especially these super-sized mega housing developments in cities. Uh, And as of last year, housing made up an estimated 25% of China's economy, which is a huge number. In the United States, which has an extremely housing-reliant economy, it's 15%, which is already like super high. And we're in the middle of a housing crunch, obviously. So now the Chinese housing bubble, and I think everybody, including the leadership in Beijing, knows that it was a bubble, is if not bursting, then at least deflating. There's been a wave of defaults. Um, Housing prices are collapsing. uh, And that is obviously even scarier for China than it was for the US because there's so much personal wealth tied up in that. And then you have problem number two, which is that local governments are also looking very wobbly. Cities and provinces have been borrowing billions for these huge development projects, this like kind of like endless borrow to spend treadmill that they've been on. They assume the economy would always keep growing, so they went deeper and deeper into debt to cover the interest on the initial loans, to new projects, even to pay for daily expenses. A lot of them even set up these special like government banks that existed solely to lend more money back to them. Um, complicated financial instruments that don't make any sense. Again, maybe sounding familiar. Uh, one estimate says that local Chinese governments collectively owe equivalent of 30% of GDP with those special banks owing another 40 to 50. Total debt in China is now equivalent to 282% of GDP. A lot of these loans to cities and provinces are coming due and local governments cannot pay them, so it's having to restructure them. Problem number three, consumer confidence in China is way, way down. People are hoarding their money rather than spending it because they think things are about to get worse. Savings rate is like 30%. In the US, it's 6%. Ironically, this makes it likely that things actually will get worse because China really relies on consumers to keep its economy afloat. The US and Europe obviously got around this problem through all the stimulus spending, direct payments to households that boosted consumer confidence. But Xi Jinping, you would not think this in a communist country, extremely ideologically opposed to any kind of government handout, supposedly, so has been blocking this. Uh, Problem number four, and this could be the really dangerous one, there is growing instability in a sector of the Chinese financial system called shadow banking, a name that does not and should not give you any confidence. Um, Shadow banking grew out of those really tight restrictions on banking that I mentioned as a way for Chinese individuals and companies to make investments and take out loans, even though they're not supposed to. The shadow banking center is now worth an estimated $3 trillion, uh, but it's very designed, very opaque, underregulated. A lot of these complex loans and financial instruments itself are all intertwined with one another, which is, of course, exactly what made the U.S. market for credit default swaps in 08 so dangerous. One estimate says that 
30% of shadow banking capital is tied up directly in housing, which, like we said, is collapsing. So that's an incredibly dangerous level of exposure. Now, some shadow banks are already starting to fail, and there is fear that that could lead to contagion into the kind of mainstream financial system. Chinese authorities are flying into action, but urban youth unemployment has already spiked to 21%. Ben, we've been through a lot of Chinese economic crises over the last 10 or 15 years. They seem to pop up every 18 months, every time they land a plane. Do you think this time is different? Feels different. It uh, feels like a lot of things are happening at the same time. I mean, uh, to, to you know, there's so much you could say. I'm just going to focus on a couple of things here. I mean, first of all, part of what's happened is there have been these you know uh, problems underneath the hood of the Chinese economy for a while, but the kind of rapid growth uh, kind of papered over it. You know, wealth is being created. Like right. you know, there, there's uh, the, the, you know the, there's kind of a market confidence that you know gives them a margin for error, and, and growth is slowed at the same time that they're dealing with all of this, uh, uh, all of these uh, potential financial contagion. Um, and and I'd highlight a few aspects to this, and and it, it really some of these do go back to Xi Jinping. Mm-hmm. Um, one point is, frankly, also just I don't think anybody entirely trusts the data that comes out of the Chinese government. Sure. Um, yeah. And so the nature of their totalitarian system makes it a little harder um, to, to just figure out how bad it is. Um, another is that, um, you know, the Chinese, when you would meet with them in 2009, 2010, and we were trying to get them to do a lot to stimulate demand and create a consumer class in China, yeah, they would explain, you know, I think quite competently about where they were in their phase of development. They had a lot more growth to do to pull a lot more people out of poverty to support, mm-hmm. you know, pensions and mortgages and things like that. And they, 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 there was a limit to some of the steps that we wanted them to take. You know, Xi Jinping came in in 2013 and he basically began to shift the model before they were done with the growth, yeah, you know? Right, and what right. do I mean by that? The state got a lot more involved in the economy. Like mm-hmm. we went backwards on mar- on market reforms to kind of a much more Marxist-Leninist approach of ultimately everybody works for the state. The state has a seat on every corporate board. The state, you know, is picking winners again. We've seen efforts that have, you know, overtly stifled innovation. Like uh, Xi basically beating back the private tech sector, taking on, you know, Ant, the successor to Alibaba, um, punishing tech leaders. Um, you know, to kind of bring them to heel. And also just in general, moving away from any kind of support for the kind of private innovation that could stimulate growth. This is happening at the same time that there's uh, new limits on foreign capital moving into China. Some of the, you know, holes in the Chinese uh, balance sheets were made up by just massive infus- infusion of foreign investment. Well, in addition to kind of just U.S. export controls and sanctions and limits on technology and, and, and investment in certain sectors of the Chinese economy, you know, I think markets and even big asset managers are beginning to look at this and think, well, because of a lot of reasons from the health of the Chinese economy, but also geopolitical tension and the threat of more U.S. sanctions, suddenly they're pulling back a little bit. Mm. Like we were just saying, like maybe I'll build the factory in Vietnam. You know, I mean, Apple's building the iWatch and in Vietnam now that they probably would have built in China 10 years ago, you know? And, and so the kinds of stuff that would have propped this up, you know, the, the growth, the investment, that's beginning to dry up. It also doesn't help, by the way, that Xi is like, you know, the Chinese police are like raiding foreign consultant <laughs> firms and like, you know, like it's just a lot of happening that's chilling things. Um, and then when you, so the, the, I focus on the Chinese decision-making more than the 
um, some of the particular aspects of the bubble, hmm. bubbles that you highlighted. But then just to take a step back to a real layman's view here, like when in the history of the world, Max, is there like growth as rapid as we've seen in China that doesn't have like a pretty big crash at the end of it? You know, sure. there is always going to be a bubble. And when people are making a lot of money, they put a lot of it into real estate. And then that becomes not as worth as much as people hoped it would be, you know, as the economy slows. And and so to me, the question is, what is this going to look like? Is it going to be like you said, every 18 months there's some story about a bubble in China and somehow it gets papered over and we all move on? Is it going to be, is there going to be like a bigger crash? Like mm-hmm. the, a bubble bursts in a way where there's huge contagion inside of China that then filters out and, you know, potentially like a rapid negative um trajectory for not just Chinese economy, but like an undertow that's pulling in the global economy. And then the other scenario is like a Japan scenario, right? Yeah. Where, you know, Japan is the superstar of the 80s and everybody's talking about how, you know, the Cold War is over and the Japanese won and they're going to, I think there were some projections that they, you know, their economy could almost catch up to the US. Mm-hmm. And they basically, you know, they had some of their own bubbles um, and they went into like a 20-year decline economically that they're still kind of shaking off. Um, uh, it, it seems like a mixture of two and three is quite possible here, like a yeah. crash followed by like a diminution in Chinese economic influence, which would have huge repercussions for everything, mm-hmm. um, for the nature of the global economy, for the US-China rivalry, potentially fueling a more nationalist and aggressive Xi Jinping seeking to kind of make up for his loss in economic clout with military power. and And so- I think that the the warning signs are everywhere here and and there's not a lot of indications that the Chinese government under Xi Jinping is willing to take the steps necessary to address it or even be honest about it. Yeah, I think the question of political will to look at this squarely is a really important. I think in years past, the the things you highlighted that are particular about the Chinese political system, I think were actually a strength in getting through a lot of the past bubbles. Like Xi's takeover of a lot of the like big private industries and the state-owned industries, when I first started writing about the Chinese economy in like 2013, 2014, it was actually really crucial for them because they had this problem where they were trying to switch from export-led growth to domestic consumption. And the biggest barrier to that were all of the like state-owned steel conglomerates that were hugely politically powerful, that were driving the economy, and that were basically telling Beijing to buzz off and say, we're going to keep exporting steel at below market rates because that's good for us, even if it's bad for the overall Chinese economy. And he did this kind of like purge where he like really brought a lot of these SOEs under heel in a way that like, you know, we only wish we could do with our big financial institutions. I think part of that there was about getting rid of Oh, opponents as much oh, as it for was, sure. you know, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah no, yeah, definitely. Yeah. No, I'm not, uh, you know, yeah. I'm not, I'm not. No, I'm it not had an ancillary benefit. Right, you're right, right, you're right. But the question is now, I think, can he still look at the economy clearly enough? I mean, something that he has really done just in the last couple of years that is really different, I think, from his first eight or nine years in office. He's really gutted a lot of the big institutions in the Chinese state that were really competent, really technocratic, yeah. Yeah. that like really guided them through this. And this is... A very old story that we've seen many times where you have a leader in authoritarian system who starts to dismantle what works in that political system to elevate themselves. And that system becomes a lot less effective. And I, I think that we are already seeing indications that the kind of technocratic muscles in China that got them through so many previous you know, housing bubbles look like it could be really bad are just really weakened because what the state is good at now is 
you know, ideological indoctrination, it's policing, the fact that their yeah. first instinct when youth unemployment hit 21% was to say, we'll stop publishing the statistic. Yeah. You know, that's not super encouraging. Um, there's also this question of political vulnerability. I mean, that youth unemployment number, especially that's, that's youth unemployment in cities. I mean, that's the most dangerous destabilizing political thing you can have in, I mean, dangerous for an authoritarian government is a lot of young people who have nothing to lose, and especially if they're educated, because then they want things more than just food and substance. They want kind of a you know identity and a place in society they can feel good about. And having you know millions or tens of millions of young Chinese people who don't have a job, we know they feel pessimistic about the future because we see it and the staggering drop in consumer confidence. That's really bad for a system that has has driven itself ever since Tiananmen and then, you know, Deng Xiaoping's Southern tour in the early 90s for 30 years on you can feel good about the future because we're going to have cool technology. You yeah. get to feel really good about being Chinese. You're going to live in these shining, gleaming glass cities. And if people feel bad about what this government is going to bring them in the future, I'm not saying that it's going to lead to another, you know, revolution, but it's definitely very bad for the, this system. Yeah. I mean, to to pick up on just a couple of those things quickly, the in terms of like the totalitarian steps, it sometimes helped, like, sure. you know, but that also I think papered over some stuff. Like just, the example I always loved is, do you remember once there was a couple of times actually, there were like these massive sell-offs happening in the Chinese stock market and mm-hmm. then they just like shut it down. <laughs> they're just like, oh, they're yeah, just like, you know, like in a way, that, you know, like, right, and right. we yeah, stopped trading off the, the stock market. Yeah, we stopped yeah. trading at the, the yeah. New York Stock Exchange stopped trading sometimes that there's, you know, you, but like, this was more like nobody knew what happened, you know, right. nobody knew how long it was shut down for right. a few days later it opens. And, and and on the one hand, yeah, that they were able to stop some stuff and consolidate some stuff and move some pieces around, but they weren't, it seems like they weren't using that time that they're buying themselves to fix this stuff, you know, yeah. and I'm not, I don't claim to be enough of an expert um, uh, to have the, all the answers to how they would do that. But then that interacts with your, I think the most important point, it, which is that they were at the same time gutting this technocratic class. And if you look at the last, you know, Politburo they had out there, the party conference, they were elevating all these like Xi Jinping flunkies, including our, our foreign minister went missing, you know, right. Um, right. and they used, you know, their technocratic class was quite smart. And and, and they're kind of not now. That's not how you get chosen for jobs. Um, and and look, what might that look like? I don't know that it'll look like you know Tiananmen and Beijing. Sure. However, sure. it might look like a lot of you know giant cities out in Chinese provinces right. where there is political violence. There are protests. Um, we saw huge protests against zero COVID, and that was a little more middle classy in sure. uh, big cities, a big like nationwide protests. But yeah. but I, I think you could begin to see you know in city after city in China, if this doesn't you know if this goes real south, like you know some real political instability. Not that regime threatening, but. Right. Stuff that will make China very inward focused. Yeah. I mean, I feel like a something I always try to remember when I am talking, thinking about what's what's going to happen in the future in China is there's never really been a country like this that is, that is this big, that has grown yeah. this fast, that has this kind of system. And so I am always tempted to kind of extrapolate, you know, think about any country, extrapolate for what happened in other countries that look similar. But um I mean, China is always surprising me, and it makes it very hard to predict yeah, what's going to happen there. Since the U.S. in the late 19th century, I can think of a rapid economic right. transformation, and we were a lot smaller. And that was the Gilded Age, and we had some serious panics. Uh, and we didn't you, have Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Panic of 1893 was not pleasant. You know? Right. Yeah. Um, I can't okay. believe I just said that out loud. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> there's a reason for it. You'll see when I, I when I tease my next book. Okay. But yeah. Wow. Okay. Yes. All a right. A little teaser there. I for love those, that. For I those Panic that. of 1893 heads out there. You know? Oh my God. Yeah. I'm one of them. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know. You're like a target audience. Uh, okay. Well, let's uh, let's close out with a couple little little fun guys before we uh, kick it to your interview. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz uh, is temporarily wearing an eye patch. After he tripped during a jog, he encouraged Germans to meme him up, and they've been complying with photoshops of him as a pirate or a Marvel villain. Fortunately, his party's poll numbers are not as funny, putting him third behind the center-right and far-right parties. Yeah, my hot take on this is actually that maybe he should own the eye patch because it gives him kind of a bit of like a charisma <laughs> that, like you know. Uh, so check it out if you haven't because it's hilarious. But yeah. like, I, it's, I think it's a decent look for the guy. You know? He does look yeah. cool, and yeah. especially with the bald head. Yeah, I feel yeah. like it's yeah, really it's a look. bald guy. Like yeah. I, you know, it, it's an accessory. You know, Are you, would you consider an eye patch? Um, uh, I, I do a pirate Halloween costume, so okay. once a year I'll okay. consider it. Only, yeah. only yeah. when you're a Burning Man. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Uh, okay. In Japan, a bunch of government ministers made a big show of eating sushi from fish caught off the coast of Fukushima. Japan has been gradually discharging very small amounts of irradiated wastewater from the nuclear plant that melted down there in 2011. The IAEA says it's perfectly safe, but understandably, people are a little nervous about it. Uh, ben, would you eat? The Fukushima sushi. I, I there. I think there's some. As long as there's some other options, I'd, I'd probably hold out. <laughs> like Fukushima sushi. Be, but I'm glad. Uh, like I, you know, I'm glad they've done such a good job at clean up at what was a scary thing. But uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it's probably hell. It's probably less scary than that sushi you eat in like the you know cheap place in the mall that where it's probably been out of the water for a very long time. That's kind of what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. So it's probably I'd actually probably eat it before that. I was I heard about this and I was on vacation in Montana and I was walking past a sushi restaurant and I thought I nah. would rather have the Fukushima sushi yeah, than Montana the Montana sushi. sushi. Yeah. yeah. Let's not do that. Okay, should we go to your chat with uh Yanti Sarito yes, yeah. the children? So I actually spoke to Yanti um last week uh, September 1st um which timed with her travel to Ukraine so she could give that on the ground view. Also timed with back to school for a lot of Ukrainian children. So uh, uh, I think people should definitely check this out. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at crooked.com slash friends. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. (laughs) 
So we obviously talk a lot about Ukraine on the show and, and have focused a lot on, on military issues, political issues. We also try to stay centered in, in the experience that the Ukrainian people are having. Um, and uh, one thing that doesn't get enough attention is the experience of Ukrainian children. Um, I, I just want to uh, lead into this by uh, re- reporting a statistic from Save the Children that right now 7.5 million children in Ukraine are in grave danger of physical harm, severe emotional distress, and displacement. Um, but um, thankfully, there are uh, organizations and obviously governments trying to help uh, address those issues. And today, we're very pleased to welcome back uh, to the podcast uh, Yanti Saripto, the president and CEO of Save the Children, who is currently joining us uh, from Ukraine. Uh, so uh, thank you so much, Yanti, for joining us. Uh, it's good to see you. No, thank you, Ben, for having me back. So so first of all, just to you know, situate our listeners, um, you know, tell us a little bit about where you are and, and, and what the nature of this visit to Ukraine is for, for you. Yeah, I thought it was important for me to to go to Ukraine and to also really travel within the country uh, as much as possible to 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 see the situation because the situation now in Ukraine is very different. It differs greatly from province province to province, as you can imagine. Um, so we started off in Kiev um, conversations, also with uh, the government and of course with our staff there um, and 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 partners. Uh, we we are working in and around. Kiev uh, in a number of more remote remote uh, towns, um, and we also traveled to Chernihiv, which is sort of two to three hours north of Kiev, um, where there had been substantive damage also to to schools and to homes. Um, then we went to Bucha, which was uh, certainly quite infamous for killings that happened there. Uh, we met them here. We were helping them rehabilitate a the school there as well. Um, and then yesterday we jumped on the train. It's a long overnight train uh, down south, uh, and I'm now in the city of Mykolaiv. Uh, it's very close to the, to what what we could now call the front line uh, of of active conflict. Uh, the city of Kherson is 70 kilometers from here. We were there this morning, talking to the governor of Kherson uh, as well, uh, seeing how we can help them more. What needs? Uh, we're topping his list. I mean, clearly he has a long, long list. Uh, but we were trying to see if we can help them. You know, it's very basic. It is sometimes building materials. It's water. Um, it's helping them rebuild shelters for schools because if there are no shelters in schools, schools cannot reopen. Um, so a number of these issues we discussed. And then we also had the opportunity to visit some of the surrounding villages where we do some more outreach with communities, uh, both people who are displaced from the cities uh, as well as people who, who live there for a long time. You spend a lot of time on trains in Ukraine. <laughs> I, yeah, no. Well, but I mean, I think people powerfully point out that, you know, that that's the experience of being at war, that, you know, air travel is not an option. Exactly, um, exactly. Uh, it's just one small uh, aspect of, of the experience that they're going through. Uh, so in terms of Save the Children's work, um, you know, I imagine in a place like Ukraine, and you obviously Save the Children operates in all manner of of conflict zones and difficult places, but just to focus on Ukraine, there's so many needs. Um, hmm. How do you make determinations about what your role is, where to focus resources, what save the children's role is vis-a-vis versus, you know, international aid donors and other uh, organizations? Like, what, 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 how, what is that process, and what, what have you chosen to focus on in Ukraine? Yeah, and it is a, it is really a moving. Uh, 
target too, right? I mean, the first phase of the uh, of the response, of course, looked very different from where we're in now. Um, so we're definitely, I, I feel that we're really shifting into that next phase. First and foremost, we were here since 2014. So we had but a small, small team, 25 people here, who are still, I think, almost without exception with us. Uh, and we were focused actually mainly in the in the east, in the southeast, where the where the previous uh, incursion happened. Uh, but of course, all of a sudden on the 24th of February last year, we had to scale that up. And we now have a team of almost 400 people uh, across the country. Um, and and we work with a lot of local local partners. And I've met many, many of them uh, over these past couple of days. Um, the first phase is very basic. You just start to, you know, immediate relief for people well it came in the form of cash the good thing about a country like ukraine of course everybody has a bank account or most people have that was functioning um it's a digitally very you know educated uh you know and and well-functioning infrastructure so actually getting cash to people was one of the fastest most efficient uh, effective ways of, of reaching the population in particularly in those first couple of months or when there's a next you know, uh, displacement happening in a city when it's either taken over, taken back, uh, depending on the nature of the conflict. So that was a large part of what we did. Another bit, which sometimes feels a bit invisible for people would say, well, you work with children, but if there is no functioning water infrastructure, nothing else can happen. There can be no health clinic. There can be no, certainly no school. Um, and by and large, of course, the, the danger of waterborne diseases is is huge. So we did actually a lot of repairs of, of water systems again there was a pretty good uh water infrastructure but if it gets uh damaged you know you need to you need to repair yeah. it um so we focused on that we immediately started actually doing um, mental health and psychosocial support for children uh even online when they were still in shelters um you know i've met people over these past couple of days who spent sometimes two months almost exclusively in shelters. Maybe they had a little bit of time to go out when it was mm. quiet for a couple of hours, then they went back in. Um, and we were able to do so online. Again, a digitally uh, you know, established infrastructure, connectivity, pretty, pretty reasonable, actually, pretty good everywhere. Uh, so that allowed us to do some of those things that you don't always get to do in, in other responses. Um, but our, our work, most importantly, for all of those choices, you have to, uh, and we do, work with, with the government, the, the various line ministries, education, health, social protection, to really understand and make sure that there's also coordination between who does what. Where, do they, yeah. where they, can they use the, the, the most help? Where where are we superfluous and should stay out of the way? Who, who else is there that can do things? Where are the local partners? We work a lot with the Red Cross here. Uh, we just visited them in amazing child-friendly space that they're running here. Uh, they're using Save the Children uh, techniques and, um, um, you know, particularly child-centered programming. But we got to use their amazing space that they already had, the amazing operational capacity that the Red Cross has in, in Ukraine. So so that's how we uh, make those decisions along the way. But And our team here is actually beyond uh, fantastic because, of course, some of these decisions you do have to make in a split second uh, because you can't fully predict how this uh, situation evolves um yeah, so even if we decide to be in a specific place for a while you have to be ready to to pack up and 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 move out or be ready to move in um it yeah. was interesting 
I was talking to the team here and they said we had a long de debate about should we move into Mikhailiv when uh, it was uh, freed um, and it wasn't safe yet. And people said, let's go to Odessa. And they said, no, 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 let's wait until we can actually get to Mikhailiv because that is closer to where most people are with the most needs. And if you end up with a with an office in another city, which is two hours further away, you may be stuck in a place where you where, where it's actually suboptimal. So some of those decisions, you have to make them on the ground. Uh, and so far, the team here has, you know, has been making all the right calls as far as I can see. What I mean, it, you know, here in the United States, it's kind of back to school time. I was, yes. you know, mentioning to you before we started this interview that, you know, uh, my kids are, you know, in the chaos of getting ready for school across the street. But, you know, it's a joyful uh, time mm -hmm. uh, for people. What, what are you learning about the experience of Ukrainian children. I'm trying to think about the range of emotional and psychological needs, the trauma of being in shelters, people who've lost parents, um, people whose parents may be at the front in the Ukrainian military. Uh, it's hard for me to get my mind around the, the, the millions of Ukrainian children, the children who, by the way, whose, whose friends probably left as refugees to Europe. You know, I mean, I, I just... I have to imagine that almost every single Ukrainian child is touched by this war in some way, and obviously probably even more so the closer you get to the front. What, what are you learning about the needs and the experience of being a Ukrainian child at this time when people are usually thinking about, you know, the the joy of going back to school? A new backpack, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 100% right. I don't think there is one single Ukrainian child and or adult that is untouched by this war. Um, and it's all of the above, right? And, you, and don't forget, before this war started, they also had two years of lockdown, right? Or a year and a half of lockdown under COVID. Yeah, so yeah. in terms of this education disruption and all the social uh, issues that come with that, they already had that, and then they had the war. Um, and what you see is, so a lot of, you're right, September 1st is back to school for Ukraine. And, and as you say, it is a real marker for uh, the Ukrainian calendar. And every person we've met, a parent, the teachers, the principals, uh, the, the children, were talking about September 1st. And I, I have to say, I've seen an unbelievable motivation and determination of people to get some of those schools open. I literally visited schools yesterday and the day before where parents and grandmothers were standing around with their with their paint and the and their cleaning rag and they were polishing their schools literally the windows were just going the new windows were literally just going in um and you know so all of that is happening you walk into a school it smells of fresh paint there's still builders yeah trying to get it ready when they can one of the issues is that uh all schools must now have rightfully so a shelter so that kids can go back to school safely and and get in a shelter if they have to and that is sometimes what is holding up schools reopening so there is a school it could function there are teachers but they need to either rebuild build the shelter because they didn't have it or or reestablish it so so that work is going on save the children is doing a lot of uh support for that helping them rebuild those shelters making sure they have the right materials making sure they have construction uh partners uh, so that is helping um um and then kids can go back to school the lucky ones Many of those kids cannot go back to school. There's certainly over a million kids, I think, that are currently won't be in person tomorrow. Um, a lot of them are online, and a lot of them are still online, even if they move to the west of the country, where it is now 
relatively safe, they will dial into their old school in the East. Uh, so the Ministry of Education is really trying to keep children with their old school system. The curriculum is the yeah. same, but they stay with their classmates and their teachers. Um, and that is even possible for children who are outside of Ukraine. They may be in school in Poland or in Italy, but they still have the opportunity to dial back in to their Ukrainian curriculum and, and their culture and, and social activity. But of course, as we all know as parents who have had some uh, some experience with uh, lockdown, it, it is hard online yeah. constantly. Oh, and yeah. then add to that the additional stress of air raids, shelter time, shellings, you know, literally, you know, 30 kilometers away, I was in a village where there was not one home untouched and some were completely destroyed. And yet there are still people there living in half demolished homes and they're trying to get their kids back to school, even if it is online. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you, I mean, is there is there a story that stands out from your travels or, or a person you met um, that uh, that just sticks with you uh, over the last yeah, few years? Yeah, so, so many. I mean, I was... Um, I literally just came from the village that was half demolished or mostly demolished. And the the village leader, so half of the population, some some 260 people are still there, 45 kids. It used to be double that. And the community leader there, she was very adamant that tomorrow would be a festive day still because it's back to school. We're going to celebrate it, even though we're standing in, and we're literally standing in front of the school building where there is no roof and two of the yeah. four walls are gone. Right. So there is nothing. She says, we're going to go back to school. We're going to celebrate outside in the schoolyard. And then we're going to go online. And we need to get these other kids back too, because without children in the village, the village there is no life in the village. right? And it's such a true emotion uh, for them. Yeah. And then uh, the first day, in on Tuesday, I think it was, we were in Cheniv, um, where actually we were uh, very close to the theater that was uh, hit last week around the corner, um, and we were in uh, one of our uh, child-friendly spaces, digital learning spaces, we call them, where kids can come. It's in a shelter. Um, and they can do robotics and Lego and the usual, you know, kids play, their kids. And the air raid alarm goes off, and then you see it instantly in the kids. They immediately, you know, understand what's going on and what they have to do. So we all end up in the shelter, a huge huge shelter which could house you know hundreds of people as it turned out um with the and we were there for an hour with the principal of the school who told us of her time when Cherny was under siege and they spent essentially with 500 people she was in that shelter where we were for almost two months and there were kids there and the teacher she and the teachers of the school try to maintain some sense of normalcy. They had lessons with the kids. If they could go outside for a bit, they went outside and they went back in two months in that shelter, uh, which is just unbelievable. Um, um, just, so two months, like just literally in, in, inside the shelter, like with, with I mean, how many people are, are we talking in, about? In a basement. Yeah. But there were 500 people in that basement. And it was a, look, it was a, a huge shelter but 500 people there were no beds right yeah. there were chairs yeah. and there were desks so people were sleeping on the floor on the desks etc it, it must have been unbelievable um yeah. you know they managed to to cook outside sometimes using wood uh, and then she was explaining she said well one of the first times that we could go outside for a bit and we had a, uh, a, a, a pe lesson uh gymnast uh, um, sports 
And she said, normally that, of course, is, is rowdy, loud, we have kids playing sports, we know what that looks like. And she said, it was the quietest PA lesson I've ever heard. You just heard the bouncing of the balls, right? They were, uh, but yeah. that's all the, the sound that that lesson made. Huh. Well, that's kind of haunting uh, detail. Yeah, I, I, um, I've not traveled as much to these types of uh, locations as you. Uh, I remember, though, the the most haunting thing for me was once being in a place where there were uh, explosions that had been, you know, let's just say regular. And and there were these children there, and they didn't react um, when the, they heard, you know, heard the, yeah. they were so accustomed to it. And that, for some reason, that always stuck with me, that that a child, that that's normal, that yeah, like, yeah, a yeah. bomb is going off. Uh, that is well, look, how can people help? Uh, what, what's uh, uh, what, what are ways for people that are listening to this and care about the work you guys are doing and, and, and your mm. incredible staff and local staff? Uh, what's the best way for people to help out? Well, as always, I would say www.savedchildren.org uh, would be amazing if people uh, can donate, want to donate. Of course, also keep the issue uh, you know on the radar of people. I can imagine this war, it, it was massive. It is still... You know, in in the media, absolutely, and you guys certainly have kept it on the radar. Thank you. Uh, but I can imagine that people also get get tired of it, right? They're like, oh, there's a war in Ukraine. There's wars in a lot of other places too. There is hunger in a lot of places, and you know, we certainly see see that even internally. We have to make sometimes these choices. But you know, the the impact here, the long lasting impact of war on children in particular, is is really unbelievable. And you, if you look into the eyes of the kids, yes. In a child-friendly space, they play, there is now, there's laughter, there is noise, there is, you know, all the usual stuff that's going on. But but, but when you then talk to the parents um, of those children uh, and they tell what's really going on with kids, that they're having nightmares, yeah. that they can't sleep, that they're missing their friends, um, you know, and then it really hits you that this is a long, long journey to, you know, even though kids are unbelievably resilient, uh, but it, it's a long road to recovery here. So they need all the help they can get. Yeah, and it's going to be a lifetime of trauma. I mean, I, I, it's just going to require enormous amounts of support and resources. But thanks so much for for the travel that you're doing and the work you're doing, and you're, you, you, everybody in the Save the Children team, because we know that they're you know these are people not you know money and glory are not the motivating factors <laughs> so um we we are very grateful for for your staff and your local but staff. Um, our team here is uh, is mostly Ukrainians, of course, and they are. They are unbelievable. They're resilient and also still so optimistic and energetic. I mean, they keep, you know, they keep at it. Um, and that's and that's what they need now. Yeah. No, well, the, 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 we're glad that they're there. So thanks so much, Auntie, for joining us. And uh, we'll continue to, to follow your good work. Thank you very much, Ben. Thank you for having us. Thanks again to Yanti Sarripto for coming on the show. And thanks, Ben, for having me fill in for Tommy. It was such a pleasure. I mean, you know, when do I get to nerd out about both Thai politics and Chinese economics? That was that was, that was wonderful. Right here on Pod Save the World. Yeah, 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 That's that where it all happens. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, no, I enjoyed it. A lot, lot to watch going forward. All right. Cheers, man. 
Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. Our executive producers are me, Tommy Vitor, Ben Rhodes, and Michael Martinez. Our associate producer is Ashley Mizuo. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Audio support by Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Phoebe Bradford, who upload our episodes and videos to youtube.com slash podsavetheworld. Thanks to Saul Rubin and Rebecca Rottenberg for production support. Our intern is Naomi Bierenbaum. <laughs>